We return to our guest, Dr. Guillaume Long, as he explains the Monroe Doctrine and its minimal impact when it was first introduced in 1823. So the only real country that bore the brunt of the Monroe Doctrine, if you like, in the 19th century was Mexico, of course, which lost a large territory, but not for the rest of Tennessee. They these, this was more of a border territorial war with Mexico rather than a classical imperialist venture where the U.S. would expand its capital, right? This is a different logic. But from the 1898 Spanish-American War, of course, which is the first time the U.S. defeats a European power since, well, since its independence and uh, the 1812 war as well, but but essentially the first time it really asserts its superiority to, to a European power in 1898, this gives the U.S. great confidence that it can start moving on to what then became its backyard, first the Caribbean and Central America, and then little by little, the more, the larger countries of South America. And so the Monroe Doctrine became a real big thing. And, and as I said, a real important thing in the Cold War, because it was a way of saying to the Soviet Union, you need to stay out of our, our hemisphere. And Trump really brought that home in a way that's now not against the Soviet Union, but against China. In fact, a lot of what people like Mike Pompeo did when they traveled around the, the Western Hemisphere and went to Latin American countries, say, hey, guys, it's finished. You need to drop China. It's with us. It's us or them. You know, And in fact, interestingly, it was quite, even with some of its closest allies, some of the most right-wing government, even with Bolsonaro in Brazil, who really sympathized to that, that really sympathized with those ideas, he disliked China. But even with them, the policy kind of failed because now it's not really about an ideological choice between communism and capitalism for Latin American countries, Latin American governments. It's essentially about economic relations. And today, Brazil, even with Bolsonaro, who's really pro-US, well, it has a much larger trade relationship with China than it has with the US. Brazil's largest trading partner is China, not the US. So even the Brazilian elites, you know, quite right wing, told Bolsonaro, don't mess with the Chinese relationship. So just to, to, to bring this monodoctrine discussion to a close, what we're seeing now is the failure of the monodoctrine, even for the classical allies of the United States, which have been the Latin American sort of plantation elites that have been ruling the countries now for centuries. It really is telling that Latin America is refusing to apply this monodoctrine in economic terms, not yet in political or security terms. So you're not seeing Latin American states really diversifying their security nexus. This is still mostly with the U.S. But in terms of economic ties, which we know is very important uh, for overall diversification of ties later on, there's there's no more. The monodoctrine is dead. So anyway, this is the, the situation with Bolsonaro. Now we have Bolsonaro defeated and we have a return of Lula to power. But this, which is obviously a big game changer because Brazil is the largest economy in Latin America, is being accompanied by other leftward shifts in the region. So over the last couple of years, yeah. Before you get to the rest of the region, can you briefly update us, Brazil? As you mentioned, it's the largest populated nation in the South. There were some 215 million, I believe. But can you compare the majority population disposition? You alluded to the terrible handling of the pandemic, for one. But with some of these other indices, you have Lula preceded Bolsonaro's reign there. Can you compare the the majority population outcomes and quality of life, living conditions for the Brazilians under both administrations? Well, sure. I mean, lots of statistics we'd have to have a look at. But basically, Lula democratized Brazilian society significantly in his first eight years in power. 
both through, I would say, recognition and redistribution, right? So there's a big element of it. And throughout the left in Latin America, which is about recognizing the people and sort of empowering the people who have been treated unfairly by first, obviously, colonial times and then 200 years of Republican life. In the case of Brazil, it's a little bit less because it wasn't a republic until much later. But so essentially, Afro-Brazilian, Black populations, indigenous people uh, living in uh, also racially different from the elites, uh, living in the big sort of shanty towns of the large Latin American cities. And this is particularly true of Brazil, what they call the favelas, you know, the very really precarious urban periphery. Those people were empowered, recognized, they were given rights, they were encouraged to participate as citizens in in society. And of course, a lot of that went through programs of redistribution. So during Lula's eight years in power, he lifted 40 million people out of poverty. And he sort of had a number of policies that enabled people to have social safety nets, to have free education, free healthcare. And uh, I mean, one of the very famous programs was his expansion of the university system so that more Brazilian uh, people from poorer backgrounds could actually go to higher education. And we know, I mean, the best remedy against poverty often isn't sort of cash transfers, although he did a lot of that as well to, to help people who were in dire need of help. In fact, he actually, so just as is very important, he was recognized by the UN as having eradicated hunger, which was a big problem in Brazil under Lula. So he did a lot of that as well in terms of like helping the people who were most in need, urgent need of help for their very survival. But in terms of, in more structural terms, the best remedy against poverty is education. And higher education, we know, is a very, very important step towards reducing over the longer term the the rates of poverty in any given country. And so he did a lot of that. Now, unfortunately, things got very complicated for Brazil and for Latin America from roughly 2014 onwards, 2014, 2015. So Lula was in power between 2003, 1st of January 2003, and the 1st of January 2011, for those eight years. But after him came Dilma Rousseff, from the same party. Excuse me, you broke up. Dilma Rousseff. She was impeached in 2016 in the midst of a very violent economic crisis, which ha- which affected all of Latin America, which had to do with commodities decline. So the decline in the prices of raw materials, which unfortunately the region, the Latin American region, still very much depends on. So, you know, for some countries, Venezuela, Ecuador, others, it's oil. For other countries, it's more sort of uh, agricultural raw materials. For Brazil, soya bean. Argentina as well, and so, and so on and so forth. So the, the prices of a term, the terms of trade for Latin America really declined. And you know, one of the criticisms, which I think is, is legitimate, and hopefully we're going to see a change now with Lula back in power, was that Latin America didn't do enough to diversify its economy away from raw materials during the so-called pink tide, right? This moment between roughly the year 2000 and the year 2015, where most of Latin America was governed by left-wing presidents. Now, in defense of the pink tide, it's very difficult to diversify your economy away from raw materials when you've had 500 years of dependence on raw materials because since colonial times, Latin America was essentially plundered because it was rich in raw materials. So the whole structure, even the class and social structure of Latin America depends on the extraction of raw materials. And to do it in five or 10 years of the government is, is unrealistic. But I think... Certainly, some governments did a bit more than others, and there has to be a real, I mean, in the long run, 
Latin America is not going to cease to be a peripheral region in the world or develop its economies in a sustainable way if it doesn't diversify its economy. So anyway, Brazil was hit by this crisis. And this enabled the right to come back, you know, to opportunistically sort of uh, come back and, and come back to this very far right uh, proposal of Jair Bolsonaro, who really governed. Um, I mean, it's th- there's so many things to say about Jair Bolsonaro, but yeah. he was me, supported just, by militias and, and very you. violent groups. Excuse me. Let, let, let me ask you this just real quick, because this is really important. Bolsonaro really had little chance, I think if I remember right, of winning an electoral type of competition with Lula. And this is something that we've seen in other nations. Number one, I think the diversification of the economy that you mentioned, when you look at the U.S. economic penetration of these economies, we really promoted single or mono-agricultural types of economies and created not just natural resources, but many of these countries, particularly in Central America, became just totally dominant on one or two commodities because that's what our investment capital was interested in. Um, and the fluctuations of the world markets would, would make them particularly vulnerable. But circling back to how the United States has dominated the Western Hemisphere and the South since the turn of the 20th century through military invasions, coups, and putting into power governments that support U.S. interests, investment interests, and keeping out of power those that do not prioritize that through the use and evolution of a toolbox of sovereignty-violating foreign policy intervention techniques. With that in mind, when you cannot overthrow a government and you cannot win the, uh, the electoral process, there's a term that I think is important, lawfare. Lula was convicted of money laundering and corruption in a controversial trial, and then those charges were annulled later on. There's this term lawfare that where a legal system can be used and the institutions connected to damage or delegitimize an opponent or deter individuals. Based on the hijacking of the legal system. Can you just clarify a little bit? Sorry to interrupt your train of thought there, but I do want to ask you to clarify the actual charges that Lula was originally convicted of and the fact that it got annulled and then made him eligible to even run for the presidency that he just recently won. Can you digress for a second and fill that in for us? Yeah, so two things what you said are very important. First, it's absolutely true, of course, that the United States and other global powers have encouraged this uh, international division of labor, right, which is the technical name for some countries specializing in certain types of exports and for of course, for the United States, it's very convenient to be able to import bananas and export technology, mobile phones, pharmaceuticals, whatever it is that is, of course, much more interesting economically for, for its economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the United States has clearly pushed back against any attempt on behalf of Latin American countries and countries in the global south in general to become more sophisticated economically. Right. So this idea that the U.S. is a benign nation that helps countries to develop, I think is totally false. I think it's it pushes back against countries that really try and so protect, for example, vulnerable industries, because obviously when you start a new sector, you have to, it's often accompanied by the state giving it some help, some subsidies, some support in order to be able to develop, in order to be able to then achieve a state where it will be able to compete maybe without the support of the state. And is the, in, in those early days, the United States is really instrumental in pushing back against state protection of incipient industries and cracking down on that, denouncing it as some form of socialism or whatever, you know, and and pushing at least the weakening of the government, in some cases, even regime change and so on. So absolutely, 
a key part of U.S. imperialism is preventing Latin American countries from developing other sectors of their, their economy, which will then make them less dependent, ultimately, on uh, U.S. and first world uh, imports. That's the first thing. Now, on, on what you said about Lula, absolutely. I mean, despite uh, everything that happened and the economic decline that Brazil underwent from 2014 to 2016, Lula you know, he left the presidency in January 2011 with 85% popularity after eight years of governing. And he would have been elected. He would have been elected in the uh, elections that uh, Bolsonaro won in 2018. And basically, the strategy was therefore to prevent him from running, to prevent Lula from running. And the way they did that was by bringing forward bogus corruption charges against him in a show trial which is uh, absolutely shameful and we didn't follow due process at all and riddled with serious problems. Eventually, I'm going to talk about what was then revealed, but what they succeeded is in getting Lula in jail for almost 600 days, uh, 580 days. Uh, so that's a long time. It's almost two years and preventing him from running, which eventually gave a Bolsonaro victory. Now, there is some now possibility, uh, more than a rumor, and there's even investigation ongoing, that the United States actually played quite an active role in the persecution of Lula. Certainly under Trump, the DOJ, and there's a congressional letter to the Department of Justice under Trump, which has again been issued, this letter has been resent now under the Biden administration, to have information as to exactly what the DOJ and the FBI did in Brazil uh, to help the case against Lula. But we know that the DOJ met with the prosecutor who was trying to get Lula in jail. There were meetings, there were a number of things under the table that are still unclear. And there's a group of 23 members of, of the House, 23 representatives in the U.S. that are asking for transparency on this. So that's that's important that the, the your listeners know this. Uh, but anyway, ultimately it was proven that the judge who sentenced Lula um, a guy called Sergio Moro, Judge Moro, and who was then, after sentencing Lula, made Minister of Justice by Bolsonaro after his victory, you know, sort of as, as, a, as a prize for having uh, locked Lula up and preventing him from winning the elections. Anyway, this judge was in direct communication and even giving instructions to the prosecutor. And anybody who knows you know, a little bit about law and justice, you know that the judge cannot be interacting off the record in private conversations with the prosecutor and telling him what to do in order to win the case, right? Which is exactly what happened. And all these chats, these telegram chats were then revealed. They were published in the press. And of course, eventually the whole case unraveled and Lula was freed and then ran in the elections and then won the election. But this is essentially the story. But it would appear that the United States played a not so glorious part in, in this overall story of Bolsonaro preventing, well, I mean, yeah, Judge Moro and then Bolsonaro preventing Lula from running and eventually Lula coming out uh, on top after being yeah. persecuted. Let me just remind folks that we are having the great privilege of visiting with Guillaume Long. Dr. Long has his PhD in international politics from the University of London, and he's uh, providing this great historical context. Guillaume, for me, when I study the history of imperialism and U.S. imperialism in the region, you see coup after coup after coup. You also see the evolution of instead of doing military invasions, we, we you know we trained through the uh, School of Americas for so many decades. People in these countries that would serve the interests of these Western investment interests as well. And then you have the almost like this evolution 
of what you're describing and you described it so well this issue of lawfare where you actually use the law itself in the context of all these different forms of intervention behind the scenes that the CIA and the West or the U.S. has been involved with in the South. You have this new type of, of intervention that appears to be that's well hidden, I should say. Right. And at the end of the day, it's a coup of sorts, but it's a coup through the co-opting of a legal system. And like you say, without due process and throwing that out the window, you give it the appearance that the person you do not want back in power because he's not as friendly to U.S. Western investment is kept from being in power by having to face charge after charge after charge. But please continue. We, we have a limited amount of time left with you. And I did want to give you the opportunity if you wanted to highlight a little bit about the UNICER issue and the regional integration. You mentioned the pink tide period, and then it succumbed to a wave of coups and everything else. And now it seems to be gaining more strength and what that means for the majority population quality of life interest. But if sure, please, yeah. please continue. Yeah, just a quick note on lawfare. You're absolutely right. It wasn't just applied in Brazil. It's been applied throughout the region. It's the new, I think today, military coups of the like that the United States supported in the 60s and 70s would be probably much more unacceptable. And that's a good positive development. It means that, you know, democracy is more entrenched in Latin America now and having sort of junters like the ones that the U.S. supported in the 60s and 70s, anti-communist junters and stuff would be unacceptable. So the way they've done this, you're right, is by sort of co-opting the judiciaries of the region and and, and often bringing uh, trumped-up charges against former presidents and and, make, and who are very, very popular because, again, uh, you know, we just said Lula reduced poverty, you know, lifted 40 million people out of poverty. But just as a general statistics, it's good to bear in mind that between 2000 and 2012, which corresponds you know, pretty well with the pink tide, you know, 100 million people were lifted out of poverty in Latin America. Now, if you take into account that there are 600 million Latin Americans living in Latin America, you know, 100 million people lifted out of poverty is huge. You know, it's kind of obviously Chinese. China's got much larger numbers, but it's a similar sort of proportion of society that's lifted out of poverty. And that was the pink tide. So this makes all these leaders of the pink tide uh, fairly popular and likely to come back to be reelected or other members of their party and so on and so forth. So, yeah, so getting them into legal trouble and, and blocking them, barring them from running and taking right away their political rights and so on, it's been an ongoing strategy. Just as a quick note, this is, applies to Brazil, we just saw it applies to Argentina, it applies to other places. I think one of the most scandalous examples is in my own country, in Ecuador, where former President Rafael Correa has been sentenced to eight years of jail and 25 years of no political rights, which means he can't run pretty much. I mean, he's in his late 50s, so he can't run pretty much ever again, because when you have no political rights, you can't vote and you can't run for office. So very sort of conveniently barring him from office for 25 years on totally bogus charges, right? I mean, the actual sentence is incredible. People don't know this. The actual sentence says he is guilty of psychic influence on others to commit crimes. Now, this is what the sentence says. Yeah. So basically through this sort of you know, his influence of his mind or whatever it is, I don't know, influence of his personality, I suppose it means. Uh, they, they couldn't prove he committed any pro crime himself, but they said that other crimes of corruption were essentially guided by his psychic influence. It's incredible. His real crime, of course, was inhibiting investment capital profitability, it sounds like. And like you say, you know, making sure that he was not allowed 
to get back into the uh, positions of power that helped to enable these programs. That you mentioned to alleviate poverty. Dr. Long. Hey, we just have a couple more minutes. Importantly, wanted to return to your Unisor article that you co-authored for some final comments and summary. I mean, UNASUR was a, you know, of course, if you're uh, the U.S., we just discussed this with the Monroe Doctrine and everything, then your policy is divide and rule. Right? It's always been the policy of great powers, whether it's a colonial or imperial or whatever, is divide, divide and rule. Right? You divide the countries that are your kind of subjects or whatever. I mean, this is a strong term, but that are dependent on you and you can rule. Now, so one of the key things for the global South to do, and this is valid in this century, is, of course, to stand together in order to have a little bit more clout because alone they're vulnerable. So one of the things that was created in 2008 was the Union of South American Nations, UNASUR. And this was a group of 12 countries who got together and said, right, it wasn't a particularly radical project, actually, but it was strategic. It was it spoke of it didn't speak of anti-imperialism, but it spoke of strategic autonomy in order to be able to defend their own interests, to enforce a few rules for capital and for, you know, in the, in the relationship with the rest of the world and in the international system, but also to have have a lot of very practical things like energy integration, infrastructure between countries that hardly speak to each other, hardly trade with each other, because of course they're exporting commodities to the US or China or elsewhere. So they have very little economic integration. So all this, I mean, I could go on for, it was a very complex, a lot of complex mechanisms in place, but it was created in 2009. The UNAS, or 12 countries in South America, sort of acting in unison in order to uh, improve their relative position in the international system, in the international community. Now, under Trump, uh, a number of right-wing governments in Latin America actually sort of the equivalent of Brexit, if you, if you like. They left the treaty, they left the organization. Seven countries out of 12 left the organization. And it was a mortal blow. You can imagine if you've got 12 countries and seven leave, then it's a very, very hard blow. So a lot of what we've done over the last few months with my colleague that you mentioned, Natasha Sounier, was to have a look at whether Lula coming back in Brazil, uh, because we know that he really likes UNASUR and it was always one of his pet projects, whether him coming back, there would be the conditions for UNASUR to be relaunched, whether juridically it's possible. So a lot of our reports about the juridical possibilities of a relaunch and what would need to be done. And it's basically an in-depth 160-page long report that the hopefully, I think, the the foreign service and the diplomatic cause of the different Latin American countries, South American countries, they're reading right now. So I'm traveling in South America, presenting our report to various countries in the hope that UNASUR may be relaunched. And I think, you know, the fact that Lula won is the real, because it's always been a Brazilian project, the integration of South America. And I think the fact that Lula won can really give this possibility a real impetus, which is why I'm, I'm, you know, I'm traveling at the moment. Yeah. Dan, thanks for that succinct. We, we, we definitely would love to have you back on to elaborate more on, on, on it. I, I just want to remind our listeners that we've had the great privilege of having Guillaume Long, Dr. Long, ha- held several cabinet positions in the government of Ecuador under Korea, and he also is with the Center for Economic Policy Research. We're talking to him from Ecuador. I cannot tell you how powerful the information you presented and your analysis today in the short time that we had. If people want to access the paper that you co-wrote to get more about this really important issue of Unisor and the possibility of it being rekindled into its former strength, uh, how do do they do that, um, Guillaume? So it's available on our webpage on uh, sepa.net. The full link for the paper probably won't remember it because it's quite complicated, but you'll see it there very prominently on our our webpage. That's CEPR, Center for Economic and Policy Research. So CEPR. 
epr.net. Pretty simple. And you'll find all our papers there, including you and Nasuruan. Very good. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to the outcome of your travels and your negotiations and your presentations of your paper. Be very interested to have you back to see how well it's received in the region. And again, thank you for bringing light into darkness. Thank you very much for having me on your show. See you next week. Don't be late.